Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode has written a beautiful novel for young readers that centers around the letters exchanged by two cousins in the early days of World War II. Here's my guest to introduce herself. My name is Barbara Nichol. I write poetry and creative nonfiction for adults, as well as fiction and poetry for kids. So in 2021, my third collection of poetry, Essential Tremor, came out with Caitlin Press, as well as a historical novel uh, for kids and young adults. It's a family story called Dear Peter, Dear Ola. And in addition to writing and editing, I've been grateful recently to visit schools in Ontario, as well as BC, to share my new novel with kids in classrooms, thanks to the support of BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as the Writers' Union of Canada. I live in Yarrow, BC, on the unceded territory of the Palalt and Chilquaic, and it's situated between Chilliwack and Abbotsford. It's just a little village. Barbara Nichols' book, Dear Peter, Dear Ula, is a finalist for the 2022 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. In our conversation, Barbara talks about the challenges of staying true to the facts while writing historical fiction and the lessons she hopes young readers will take from the book. Barbara starts our discussion with a reading from Dear Peter, Dear Ula. So just a brief intro to the gist of this novel. It begins on September 1st, um, 1939, uh, the first day of World War II. And it's a correspondence between two 12-year-old cousins who have never met um, because one cousin, Ulla, lives in Danzig or present-day Gdansk. And the other cousin, Peter, lives on a farm in a rural Mennonite community in Saskatchewan. So I'm just going to start with an excerpt from a Peter chapter, but it's in the context of him reading uh, one of Ulla's earlier letters and that will become clear. Peter unfolds his second to last letter from Ola. Dear Peter, April 20th, 1939, the day of Hitler's 50th birthday parade we didn't attend. Have I ever told you about the postmen in green uniforms? They take the mail from those big red letter boxes in the city center and bring it to the Polish post office on Havelia Square. The mail from there goes only to Poland, and the postmen are all Polish too. Fati explained everything to me. You know the Polish writing on the letter boxes? He even understands it. Those boxes are the reason I met my new friend, Erwina Barzachowska. About a week ago, my father and I were out for an evening walk and noticed one of these boxes had some German words I'm not allowed to repeat painted over it and a big black X over the white eagle. Fati shook his head. Seeing this makes me ashamed to call myself German. When he swiped his hand across the X, it left a smudge of black paint on his finger. Why ashamed? I asked. 
I'm always asking why. Having their own post office gives the Polish people here freedom and independence. The Germans don't want that, he rubbed at the paint. I should say some Germans don't want that. But just wait, he said with a half grin. Tomorrow morning, I want you to bike out here before school and take a look. Why, I asked as we made our way home. You'll find something that surprises you, he said, half grinning again. Fati loves surprises. Peter, you know me. I was up with the bakers the next morning, whizzing my bike over the cobblestones to that box. There was a girl about my age, maybe a little younger, with short, cropped, shiny hazelnut hair, and a man in overalls, bald but with a bit of wispy hair, and they were both painting the box. They glanced at me and got back to work without a word. I asked if I could help. The girl smiled and handed me a brush and a small tin of red paint. She put a finger on her lips. I guess they were painting in secret. You might think it was hard for me to keep quiet, but actually it felt good to paint over those ugly words with only the sounds of an automobile now and then, the whack of a newspaper landing on a front porch, a pigeon or two. Do you think pigeons ever sleep? You should have seen the box when we were done. As good as new. That's when she whispered her name to me, Erwina Barzachowska. She likes to draw and paint, just like me. She was helping her uncle Jan, who is the custodian of the Polish post office. Erwina lives in the Polish post office with her uncle Jan and Aunt Malgarzada. They are like parents to her, and also she knows all the postmen in green. How would you like to live in a post office? I think it would be very interesting. And the next excerpt is a letter from Peter to Ola. It's from later in the novel, and it's from a chapter called Piano Boy. Dear Ola, Tuesday, September 19th, 1939. Wish you could have seen the northern lights last night when I woke up in the middle of it. The whole sky was alive and waving green like it was singing in German and English both. It made me think of you way over there in your letters somewhere between us on a ship bobbing up and down in the waves. It sure will be nice when I get them. Frau Taves at the post office said with this bore, who knows what's getting through. Every Sunday at church, I look from the balcony for her. She always shakes her head. No letter from Germany. I can't believe you stopped writing, so I'm thinking they must be stuck. Or else old Hitler doesn't let anything through. I wouldn't put it past him. I think I might bust with something I want to tell you. Bruno Warkentin had a secret meeting for German boys only at Friday recess. I think I told you I've known him since I was born, but he's not really a friend. A while ago, I called him crazy because he was scared some boys from our school might be spies. How stupid is that? Well, he didn't like me calling him crazy. Now he won't leave me alone and smiled when I walked up to them at the fence as if he had something up his sleeve. Have I told you about that expression yet? It just means you have a secret plan. Mustard Peter, he said. He calls me that because I have a suit that color for wearing to church. Where's your pretty suit? He was chewing gum. He chews it at recess and then spits it out for school because we're not allowed. He can get all the gum he wants, so it's no big deal for him to throw it out. He said, you might need it to pretty up for some stupid piano concert. We can hardly wait, right, boys? Everyone laughed except David Penner. He takes piano lessons too. Lots of kids do. 
Tanta at least drives to the school in Oka's Pontiac and gives them to in the teacher's house next to the school every week. I get to skip math to have my lesson. Get lost, I said, because I couldn't think of anything else to say. He got down off the fence and pushed me and I stumbled backwards. He said, you're not getting rid of me so easy. We're meeting at the creek on Saturday after chores for a training session. You better be there, piano boy, or else. Training session, I said. I couldn't believe old Bruno was still on about that. I knew right away I wouldn't be able to go because I have an extra lesson on Saturday for a piano exam I'm taking in November. It's my first ever exam. It was hard for me and Mama to get Father to let me have the lesson. There's no way I can miss, but I wasn't going to tell Bruno. To fight the English, of course, said his friend Henry Regeer. Henry has the best shot of all the boys. He pretended to aim a gun at the ball diamond where Cal Kondracic was playing catch with a few other boys and Johnny Firecracker Wheeler. They don't look very dangerous to me, I said. Why do I keep saying things to make Bruno mad? I never used to do that. Playing catch looked like fun. I felt like going over there. Ola, do you play ball? If not, I can teach it. I bet you could even pitch. I almost walked away, but Bruno pushed me and said, just you better show up Saturday. That's what. Thank you. Yeah. My first question for you uh, may end up being the hardest (laughs) that I ask, (laughs) but if you could read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Well, yeah, this is a pretty tough question, (laughs) but you know what? I have to say it's the novel Lila by Marilyn Robinson. I think I've read it three times and each time I've just gleaned more. It's just this continuous gift. Uh, She's just such an Italian, intelligent, brilliant writer, both just like in her use of, of seamless voice and how she manages time. Um, the passage of time in her novels, her unfailing unsentimentality, and just like the depths and the subtlety that she plums themes of faith, which are also sort of at the core of of my writing sensibility right now. So, yeah, I, I haven't read that one, but it's, I always like, I see her books on the library all the time and I like jot them on a list and there's too many books in this world and just not enough I know. time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's chat about Dear Peter, Dear Ula. I, I wondered if you could start off by talking a little bit about how this book started. Sure. So like it began years ago when I was in the MFA program uh, program at UBC and I was trying to write an adult novel about my mom's family story. So my grandfather, my grandpa Jansen, um, came from the city of Danzig or nearby um, in a farming community. And I'd always been fascinated by that area and by my mom's stories. But there was a kid's novel um, seed in there too. And after years of like trying to write the adult novel and then it morphed into creative nonfiction and et cetera, et cetera. Years later, I realized, you know what? I want to write a kid's novel about it. Um, so I had already done a lot of preliminary research. So there was there were these seed stories. So one of them was that my mom um, lived in a farming community in Saskatchewan and she had this correspondence with her first cousin, Ola. They were pen pals. And even though they had never met, they were really good friends 
from the letters that they wrote to each other. And then there's this other seed story. And that is that Ulla, her birthday party was canceled because World War II had started. <laughs> her birthday is September 1st. Um, she was about, I think, eight years old or something in 1939. And so her father was a city policeman and he was charged with making sure that everyone was in their basement on that day. And so her birthday party was canceled. And I had always thought it would make, a, like, a, I thought maybe a picture book, but then my writing professor said, you know, said, no, I think it's a novel. <laughs> and yeah, it sort of went from there. And then there was this other really key story with Ola, and that is that her father, who was the city policeman, had been asked by the Nazis to transport prisoners to Stutthof, um, which was a nearby concentration camp. And, and Ola was listening to him tell about this to her mother. It, she was at the top of the stairs, kind of peering through the, through the banisters. Just such a clear and vivid image to me. Um, and it was the first time she ever saw her father cry and he had made the decision that he he couldn't in good conscience he couldn't do this and that was just so powerful to me i i knew that i had to write about that couple of other things just to weave into this origin story so then also then ulla's husband um claimens who was older than her on that day that world war ii started so he lived in the same city of danzig he watched the battle of the Polish post office from behind a walnut tree when he was 14. I never got to talk to him about that, but I heard that story through my mom that he had watched this. And I mean, it's a battle you don't really hear about very much, you know, it's, but actually if you look on, on the internet battle of the Polish post office, there it is. And it was this really crucial battle that happened on the first day in world war II, And from that and maybe we can talk about that later. Some other things grew out of that research of, of that battle. Then just one more thing. And that is just like, I'm a poet, right? So yeah, I just had this really strong image of a boy in Saskatchewan standing out on the farm and looking at the sky. And it's just that, that feeling that it's just about to snow. Like it hasn't snowed yet, but it's that feeling like something is going to happen. And that I just sort of simmered that image for a lot of years. And that became the, the opening of the novel. So, yeah. so many great um, real life kind of moments in there. But I mean, of course, the other one is Erwina is a, was a real life person. And how did you first hear about her? Well, that's, yeah. So that comes out of like researching. So after I heard that Claimens had watched the Battle of the Polish Post Office, of course, and I went on the internet and I was reading the Wikipedia article about this battle. And that's where I first heard about Erwina. So, you know, it it turned out to be faulty information, <laughs> which I can explain later because it's a fascinating story. But there was just this tiny little nugget. And it said that the Polish Post Office keeper's daughter which turned out to be faulty, was injured in this battle um, because she actually lived in the post office and she was injured. And she had been transferred with other prisoners to the Gestapo hospital with burn wounds. Um, and then she had, it's at least she had died later. So that I took that and I created an entire novel 
entire character, whole plot line I, I created from that nugget, but it was frustrating because I didn't have very much. Now, do you want me to go on and tell the rest of that yeah, story? I'd love to hear it. <laughs> so fast forward years later, I've already gone through several drafts of this novel to prepare for my agent. Then my agent has sold it to Thistledown and then Thistledown is getting ready to publish it like in the fall of 2021. But one of the board members or someone on the committee asked, you know, like, how did Ola and Erwina communicate with each other? Because uh, er- um, Ola was German, Erwina spoke Polish. What was their language thing? What was going on there? And I, so I just started kind of researching and this is years later right and so I'm researching about Erwina and and just or Polish people living in Danzig or whatever and I just by chance came across this incredible article that was written on some anniversary of World War II so it was written after all my research had been done which is why obviously like I hadn't come across it earlier and there was this huge this portrait of Erwina like of like holding this tutka and anyway, it was just incredibly exciting to me. Like all of a sudden she became a real person and they're like, there's a memorial to her in Danzig and she had this aunt and uncle. So she was actually the niece of uncle Jan and aunt Malgarzata who were real people and all, and those Polish post um, post office men, like, that whole line and about the post up post boxes being vandalized and all of these real life things just sort of like were handed to me on a silver platter. And then this had come from the Polish post office museum in Gdansk, which even though I had visited Gdansk years earlier, had never visited. So I became in contact with this incredibly helpful um, employee, like research guy at the, at that museum. And he gave me like, so much incredibly valuable information but the thing is I had three months to do all this like I had three months to transform my novel based on all this new stuff like Erwina I had to change hospitals because it wasn't she hadn't gone to the Gestapo hospital she had gone to a different hospital anyway I could go on and on but it was it was really exciting it was the most challenging rewrite I've ever done and it was all based on like changing research (laughs) changing facts well I wanted to ask you more about the challenges because I mean I think sometimes it seems it in my naive non I don't write fiction I write creative nonfiction. but Mm -hmm. in my naive way it feels like it would be easy to have facts but then to be able to like fictionalize some of it Mm -hmm. to fill it in but it seems like you wanted to stay very true to the facts as much as you could. And and so what were the challenges for you in fusing together the real life and the fiction? Well, you know, that's that's really interesting. Um, I mean, on the arena side, it was. It, it just was so rich. And I was able to just pull these things and fill them out. And I had had so little information before that it was just like, a luxury for me to have all this stuff about her. I actually had to cut out some of the details about Arena's life because I had too much. But on the Peter side of the story, now that became different because I got a lot of my research from talking to my parents. Like I would call up my dad and say, okay, so, you know, what's the harvest like in Saskatchewan this time? And he would give me everything. So the problem with that though, and the challenge 
was to get it right. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have the old thing, like, you know, family, even my mom reading it and saying, you know what? It wasn't like that. Of course, it wasn't like that from her point of view, because I'm putting together a collage of all kinds of different truths um, based on stuff that they're giving me. So, but when she actually came to accept that, then she read it and said, you know, it, it is right. But it, it's hard, you know, when you've got real life people and separating my bully, for example, you know, my bully on the Peter side in the first drafts, like he actually wasn't really a bully. And I think it was me walking on eggshells a little bit and not wanting his name was Carl. And I didn't want to offend based on like a real life, real life character who wasn't a bully in that community. But I just, I didn't want to offend anyone, whatever. Then when I was doing this massive rewrite, all of a sudden, like my editor, Rhea Tregobov, who was amazing, you know, said like, he's not really a bully. He's not really a strong character. You have to do something with him. So all of a sudden, I, like I changed his name. And suddenly with that name change, it gave me the courage to let him be someone completely different who wasn't really from T from Grant, who had like, was a, like a character in his own right. Suddenly Peter was looking in the reflection when he was like wiping the window of a car and he saw Bruno and suddenly Bruno was scary and he was a real bully. And yeah, so that was a big challenge, like overcoming quote, quote, real life, yeah. like the real story. Well, especially when those real characters, like it's one thing when you're dealing with like historical real characters that aren't your family. <laughs> like, right. I think that's a like, because it was your family story. It wasn't just something you'd read in a history book. It, <laughs> it feels harder that way because you want to be somewhat true to their experiences. Yeah, exactly. And if I can, if it's okay, I, I will just add something else there that's really relevant. And that like Rhea also pushed me on the whole, you know, people in Saskatchewan at that time period and in that Mennonite faith community, how were they, what was their attitude toward Hitler? Right. Because she felt like in my previous draft, it was just way too neutral. And she's like, you know, <laughs> Rhea coming from Jewish background, like this gives me a visceral reaction. You know, you need to let these characters take more of a stand. And so then I did some research and yes, like they were much more in the, isolated in their own community. They weren't in touch with a lot of political stuff. And I wanted to be true to that. But then I also wanted them to take a stand. <laughs> and so I found that I was kind of riding this line between what it was really like and, well, why not? Why couldn't Peter's dad get be corresponding with Ulla's dad and find out things about the Nazis that, you know, made him take a stand against the Nazis as well? I want to talk about the letters because I, I'm I'm fascinated with letter writing in books um, mm -hmm. because, I mean, people don't write letters anymore. And I think, uh, especially as we see in the exchange between Peter and Ula, like, you know, we send emails and direct messages now and it's instantaneous. And with Peter and Ula, there was a large period of time where it was a one-sided co communication because Ula couldn't send her letters to Peter. So I want, I mean, obviously from what you've shared there, there were real letters, but how did that decision to kind of let the letters be part of the, the story, like the narrative of the story and how the story was told, was that, you knew that from the get go or how did that come along for you? Well, as I said, I mean, it was, I was so fascinated by the, by this, 
um, but my, my mom's story telling me that she was actually a pen pal with Ola and, and that caught my imagination. But, you know, I'm a print person. I, I have to, anything I get, you know, I have to print it out. I have to feel the paper. I have to be able to highlight things and underline things and write notes in the margins. I'm also a journal writer and letters aren't so far <laughs> away you know, from writing in a journal. One time I had a friend saying something like, you know, I'm writing a letter. It's almost like it's like to myself with you in mind kind of idea. And so to give, to make a book out of this, it, I think it gives the possibility for a kind of intimate communication. That's really hard to get with another authorial voice. And, and I think there's also something about voice, right? Like Peter, for example, when I started writing letters from Peter to Ola, it, it really um, influenced his voice, like the, the voice of the character in the novel, because he's not very good at punctuation. He leaves out periods and apostrophes and things. And so it became this kind of run-on voice, which, yeah, it just became really true to his character. So the letters informed character. There's a kind of investment Right. Like when you look at texting and stuff now, like or Facebook or Snapchat, it's so, you know, you'll there's such a volume of stuff out there. So, you know, it's all you can do to just kind of browse, just skim, browse, get through the next one. Instant, instant with letters. It's like, you know, you have to spend time writing it and then it takes time for it to get there. And then the person receiving it has to take time reading it so that there's this whole time investment and a kind of deeper communication can open up because the time spent. So, yeah. Yeah. The thing I'm also, I think, very interested in with letters is the like, the permanence of it, which is kind of strange because I think we now have a feeling that everything is permanent on the internet, but it seems like letters have, because they have the time probably spent and the time it takes to get there, they, that tangible feeling, they're kept in a way that we don't keep emails or text messages. And I, I think that's something that we don't consider with letter writing as much. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that you should say that because, as I said, like, I'm a print person. So, like, with my friend who lives in Montreal, you know, for years, we've had this very long email correspondence. And I used to always print out, like, the emails and keep them as letters and have a file in my filing cabinet with, like, correspondence from this friend because I don't, I don't want to lose it. But with electronic, it just feels like with an instant, it could all go away, Right. But with letters, I mean, sure, I guess you could burn letters or whatever, but yeah, there's that permanence, you know, and, and I think there's a loss of culture because we don't have that. I mean, for example, when I was writing the Mozart Girl, uh, a kid's novel that came, it was like my first book that came out. I based my entire research almost on reading the correspondence between Wolfgang and General Mozart's father, Leopold, his correspondence with their landlord while they're away on tour. And so I got incredible details from this, like the cost of firewood at Versailles in like 1720, whatever. So 
like, what do we have <laughs> in terms of that, right? So those letters, those bound printed volumes of letters, I mean, it goes on and on, you know, the correspondence between, you know, whoever, Robert Lowell and um, Elizabeth Bishop, right? Like, we have all that, right? And so we have this amazing window into the past. And you look, you know, fast forward, however, are people going to be able to read our correspondence the way that we can read the past correspondence? Yeah. I think so, like, especially during periods of war, letter writing was, I mean, it was all people had. And I, I remember talking to Kathy Page about her book, um, Dear Evelyn, a couple of years ago, and, and her her book was largely influenced on her parents writing their letters back and forth through the war, therefore had to forge almost a whole marriage through letter writing. And it's it's amazing how, you know, we with the story of your mom and, and her cousin and dear Peter and Peter and Ula in the book that what a connection can be formed through letter writing. And I wonder if it's the same with a digital communication. Well, and it's, it's like a lifeline. I mean, when I think about it, I mean, you mentioned earlier, like some of those letters, I mean, cause that was a big problem I had when writing the book at first, because my mom informed me that we actually didn't get letters from Germany that because it, correspondence was halted. So I actually changed a bit and had a few coming through, um, sorry, from Peter to Ola, but Ola's letters to Peter didn't get through. And so, yeah, how do you deal with that? But then to me, it, it turned out to still be a worthwhile thing. It's like mental health, right? Like it's like journal writing. It becomes like being able to get a grasp on things and process the things through the act of writing to another person. Yeah. I mean, this, this book is so great because it's so rich in its history and the characters, but also you're dealing with these topics of identity and belonging and empathy and bullying and but it's all these stories of course are set in this time but these ideas are things that are very current and that we keep discussing over and over again and I I wondered about using history to tell those stories and to talk about those things that are are timeless and that we're still grappling with yeah you know that's such a good question um like this is a family story, as I said, and like, I knew I had to write it. It's been in process for decades, but then it's interesting that it should come out, you know, in 2021, right at this, such a fraught time um, politically with, you know, bullying and hate crimes and racial violence. And this time we need more than ever empathy. And in my worldview, answering hate with, respect and compassion and understanding but and i think to actually tangibly see these themes come to life in a different time period i think it can give us objectivity and wisdom you know in because you're so in the heat of the moment now right you've got your emotional reactions everything but to actually see okay same thing happening hundreds of years ago, wow, I can learn from this. I can gain strength and inspiration from these characters. In Dear Peter, Dear Ola, at the back of the book, in the back matter, there's a, um, a story about an Anabaptist martyr who comes 
from my faith background, um, my Mennonite faith background um, of an Anabaptist martyr, his name was Dirk Willems, and he was being chased, persecuted, chased across the ice by his captor who wanted to capture him and kill him. And he actually, the captor fell through the ice and Dirk Willems went back. This is in like 1569, went back and rescued his captor from from the ice. And then I based a, a plot point that actually becomes the climax of Peter's story in the novel. I based it on that story. So we have like a 1939 retelling of that story. Yeah. And as I said, I'm, I'm, my hope is that young readers can be inspired by that act of courage and of bravery in the face of violence and and persecution and to gain the strength and courage to change behaviors in this day and age. That was Barbara Nickel. Barbara's book, Dear Peter, Dear Ula, is a finalist for the 2022 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Daryl J. McLeod. Daryl's book, Piagau, Reclaiming Pre-Dignity, is a finalist for the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.